Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and we are working our way through the New Testament book or letter called the Philippians. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles if you know where it is, or if you can use your smartphones if you'd like. The ESV has a great app that I commend to you. It's also found for you on page 10 in your order of worship. We also have a children's version for our kids who are going to stay with us. And then in front of you is that dark blue Bible on the chair rack there. It's found on page 921 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at home today, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. So as you're turning to God's Word today there towards the middle of chapter 1, I kind of want to reiterate some things I said last week. And one of them is as we read the New Testament epistles, we all need to work really hard to channel our inner southerner. The word y'all, Y-A-W-L, y'all, needs to flow freely in your heart, in your mind, in your inner voice, in your outer voice, whatever it is, because that word Y-O-U, when it occurs in the New Testament, is almost always plural. It's y'all. But I know, having grown up in the church and been a Christian for a long time, that we tend to read that word as ourselves, don't we? Individuals, us. And that changes things sometimes. And we're going to see it, especially today, it changes things. In this passage we're going to look at today, we're actually seeing Paul praying. He's telling us specifically what he's praying for. And there are two options laid before us. If we read the word Y-O-U as an individual mandate, it means that Paul is praying for our individual personal piety. He's praying for our growth in theological expertise, which is how I have always defaulted to reading this text and how many of you probably do as well. But if he's praying for y'all, if it's plural, it means Paul is praying for a community to reflect their union with Jesus and to demonstrate that unity. And it's important that we make this distinction because what can happen is we can fall into this trap of saying things like we believe in inerrancy, we believe in inspiration, we can put committed to Christ and His Word on the front of our bulletin, but we can actually be fundamentally not submitting to the text because we bring our assumptions to the text and instead of reading what it says, we read what we think it says. So with that introduction, we're going to work through this now together, kind of looking at what does this text actually tell us today. And so one of the things about being in an epistle, you're going to want to have God's Word in front of you. So all those various methods I mentioned about three minutes ago, pull one of those out and let's look at God's Word together. You're going to keep it in front of you as we work through it over the next 20 minutes or so. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is God's Word. <clears throat> and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this is God's Word. Let's pray together. And gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before your Word today, we do pray, Lord, that you would challenge us. We pray, Lord, that you would open your word up to us, us to it. We pray, Lord, that you would show us truth. And where some of us have perhaps been misunderstanding or assuming things, would you give us repentance and clarity? 
We pray, Lord, above all things that because of our encounter with You in Your Word this morning, we would see Jesus and all of His beauty as He's offered in the Gospel. We pray that You would do this, Father, by Your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so just a little bit about Philippians to kind of get us all anchored together. So Paul planted this church in the Greek city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16, if you want to read that account. And now we're in the life of Paul, we're about 12 years in the future from him planting that church. And he writes to thank them that they have been a financial supporter of his for that whole 12 years of ministry, especially the last two-ish years where he has been in prison not able to do ministry traditionally, and they still have supported him. But we start to now see the other reason he's writing to them is he has heard reports about what's going on in the church, and there's some problems. There's some issues that he needs to pastorally address with them, and so he writes to kind of address these issues. Last week, we started out, he told us that being a Christian means being on Team Jesus, that we play as a team and that we have a coach. And by the idea of team, what I mean is what theologians call our union with Christ, that salvation is in Jesus Christ, that he is the one who fulfilled God's law and he has earned salvation for us. And so in him, we are given the grace of salvation, that Jesus is righteous, Jesus is compassionate, Jesus is holy. And so those attributes become ours in our union with Jesus, where another way to understand it is being on team Jesus. And so Paul says that a Christian is united to Jesus that way. And so growing as a Christian is becoming more like Jesus as he works that union out of us. So he puts it into us, and then he starts to work that out of us. So in our hearts and in our minds and our actions, we become actually more like Jesus. That was all last week. This week, Paul expands on this idea of playing as a team by praying that they would have a real love for each other, especially when they have differences with each other. And that gets us to our theme for today, kind of what I want everything to orbit around is this. Christians glorify God when we enjoy each other in Jesus. And so we're going to see as we walk through this together that we glorify God by putting people over issues and by having unity over uniformity. So to get us started, I actually want to start at the end where Paul states what his goal of this prayer is there at the end of verse 11. He says it's for the glory of God. So Paul wants us to be glorifying God. So we're part of a denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA for short, and we have doctrinal standards. And one of those standards is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're accountable to believe in what it outlines for us. And the very first question in that catechism asks the question, basically, what are people for? What is the purpose of humanity? Or to use the old language, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so our theme today kind of plays off that is that we enjoy God when we enjoy each other. We glorify God when we enjoy each other. To walk into our purpose, what we were created for, we Christians, we live out our union with Jesus when we enjoy each other. It's one of the evidences of that. Not merely putting up with each other. We're good at that, usually. Not just kind of, you know, enduring each other. 
but actually enjoying each other, we glorify God. And in a cultural moment such as ours, that's actually really subversive. You want to be rebellious? You want to stick it to the man and start wearing chains and boots and stuff? Actually love each other. That's subversive nowadays because our culture has slipped into this very intense tribalism, hasn't it? Where people are together in these little groups, not because they like each other, but because they hate the same things or because they're angered by the same things, or because they're offended by the same things, and they ferociously police each other. And if you don't toe the line, you're out. Now, I'm using third person they because we don't do that. It's only them out there, I know. See, and Paul prays for those inside the church. He's talking to church. This is an epistle to the church. This is one of those things, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you get to see how the New Testament spends so much time critiquing the church. He prays that those united to Jesus, because we don't just share a common belief. We're not just angered by the same things. We actually enjoy each other in Jesus. See, our union with Jesus means we're in union with each other too, and it's supposed to show. It's supposed to be obvious. And so the text of this prayer is him trying to pray that union into us. And he prays for just two things today. It's very obvious in the original Greek. The English kind of muddles it up, but it's super simple. The two things he prays for. Verse 9, he prays for our love would abound. Verse 10, that we would be pure and blameless. Everything else is just modifying those two things. So let's look at these two requests. First request is that we would put people over issues. Look with me at verses 9 and 10 says this, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. That's the ESV translation. Another way we could kind of rigidly translate it is that y'all's love would constantly overflow into awareness and understanding, into your recognizing what really matters. See, Paul prays that their love would continually overflow And he purposely doesn't put a direct object here because he doesn't want to limit it to our love for God, our love for each other, our love for the church, our love for the Bible. He says, just love. Just let it flow everywhere. Drench everything. See, again, we're going to find out as this book progresses, this is a church with some troubles. This is a church with some conflict, with some discord, with some unity or disunity. In other words, it's a real church, right? And I love how Paul, writing to this church with issues, doesn't start out with, y'all cut that out, which is how we tend to react, right? But no, he starts out by praying that their love would overflow. A love filled, he says, with knowledge and discernment. All right, what is that? So knowledge here, it's not so much the accumulation of facts. This is knowledge meaning more the idea of insight, Or another way it's translated in other places is the idea of awareness, especially when it's used with the word for discernment. This one's interesting. This is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament all throughout the book of Proverbs, not for wisdom, but for that aha moment, that moment of understanding, that moment of, oh, I get it now. So when you put these two together, you get this idea of let's have some insight and let's have some understanding. Let's have some awareness, and let's have some understanding. And the the rest of the context helps us really narrow this down where he says in verse 10, let's approve what is excellent. This is recognize or examine the excellent. This is a fun word. I'm kind of a geek, so I love language and how it works. This, This is actually a verb from to be carried. How is that excellent, right? 
Well, here, here, those of you who travel, there comes a point when you travel when you have to be separated with your big luggage and the stuff on you. Where do you put your cash and your ID? Is it the stuff you're separated from or do you carry the things that are important, right? That's what this means. The things carried are the things that are excellent to you. They matter. They're important. Isn't that a beautiful idea? So we bring all these together. What is he saying? He is praying that their overflowing love would be drenched with awareness and understanding so they can recognize what is really important, what matters. Okay, that's a lot to process verbally, I know. So let's all look together at the kids' version. Here's how I tried to put this for the kids to bring it all together. Okay, boys and girls here on the middle of page 10 for you. Our verse 9 and 10 says this. I pray that y'all's love would spill all over each other, helping y'all see what is really important. Remember, Paul is praying to Christians, a group of Christians who aren't getting along. And he's saying, man, I hope y'all can just love each other so much that you realize what's actually important. And do you see how if we're not faithful to the text, if we don't force ourselves to read this in the plural, how we would default to reading this prayer, how I read this prayer for the first half of my Christian life as referring to me as an individual Christian. So what, this, what I'm supposed to be praying for is what? I need to learn more theology, knowledge. I need to be able to understand the truth behind the powers in our culture, discernment. And I need to make sure that I'm aware of and weary of the unclean people, right? Approving the excellent. I'm not going to make you raise your hand if that's been yours as well. But you see how we bring this stuff to the text, and that, that looks like a faithful reading of the text, except the text is not about me. The text is about we. And when we dig into it, what he's calling us to be is a community. See, when we submit to this text, we start to see behind the scenes, oh, here are some of the issues in the community. They're majoring on things that Paul says, do those really matter? He's, he's dealing with a congregation that has differing priorities. You know, when something is really important to us, especially if it's an application of our faith, especially if it's a manifestly obvious application of our faith to ourselves, and so we don't prove it, we just assume it, when another Christian doesn't assume that same thing, we don't look at ourselves and ask if we're wrong, do we? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we doubt their maturity. We doubt their discernment. See, that's kind of what's going on here. And we'll see as we get further into the book that it's exactly what go, is going on. Paul is hinting gently at this. And he's saying, I hope y'all have a love. I pray that y'all have a love that is so profound, it actually gives you an awareness and an understanding of what really matters, of what's truly worth arguing over inside the church. Let me give you an example of this. So we nominate men for, to be officers near the end of every summer. And then the men who think, Mom, I'll consider this. I'll pray for you consider this. They get leadership training the first half of the year the, in the fall semester. Then they get some other training at the second semester in the spring. And then we present those who believe they're called to you near the end of April. And I have been asked to come in and lead the very last session in the fall. We kind of talk about cultural issues and issues in our denomination. And because they gave me the microphone, I took ex uh, uh, advantage of that. And I also demand that all of our officers have empathy, the ability to understand the feelings of another. 
And Paul's prayer here backs up is where I can go to cite chapter and verse on how I can justify that demand. Because what, what we're seeing here and what I'm applying is that elders and deacons must be able to embrace in love every single person in the congregation. Even if that person has radically different politics, social issue beliefs, educational philosophy, it doesn't matter. If you're going to be an officer, you have to be able to empathize with that person's feelings, even if you disagree with their conclusions. Because ultimately, those things don't matter as much as our union with Christ matters. That's what Paul is getting at here. And that's what he prays, not just for the leaders, but for the whole church. Now again, this is, don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not well, the world is offended by the gospel, and so we should be very careful about that because we don't want to upset them. Paul is not talking about, Paul is talking right in here, Christian on Christian, okay? There's been like a throwdown on Monday night, and he's trying to get in there and referee this thing. This was happening. We're going to find out later. Let me give you an example of this. So most of you know this. I've been, always been around churches in the South in general, and in the South, in churches like ours, in general, for the most part, usually, have I caveated enough, I'm going to not get in trouble, we tend to be socially conservative and politically tend to lean Republican, right? Duh. God calls me up to Boston to plant a church, start meeting Christians up there in Boston. The craziest thing happened. <laughs> People would pull me aside like, is it true that all these Christians in the South, that they're actually Republicans? How can they do that? How, how can they see and they have all these assumptions? Just like you have all these assumptions when you hear that, like, hold up, they're Democrats and they're Christians. And you know what? You can have great issues of conscience that you have come to, and that is fine. Please, I'm not saying anything about that. But what Paul would say if he was here is like, isn't it great that our union with Jesus is so much more important that we can vote the opposite on issues every single election and still love each other because that's what matters? That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I pray that you'll on, on team Jesus, people are more important than issues. The next thing Paul prays for is unity over uniformity. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 together. <clears throat> it says this, It is my prayer that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Did you read y'all maybe? Or did you read, I may be? See, it's hard, isn't it? We default to seeing it. it we're, we're always the main character in our stories, aren't we? We, we? we put ourselves in there. Paul is praying not to an individual Christian. He's praying to a church that y'all would be a certain way. And let's work through this again. What's he say? Pure. This is the idea of being exposed by the light, of not hiding, of being sincere. To use our cultural vernacular, we could even fit the word authenticity into this idea here. And then blameless. This one's really fun. This is actually based in a verb that means tripping or stumbling. And it's the idea of don't cause someone to stumble and don't stumble yourself. And it was used later on for the idea of offense, of don't be offensive and don't give offense. Now again, He's talking about Christian on Christian. This is not, well, that person out there who's not a Christian says the gospel is offensive, so I guess I shouldn't talk. It's not what Paul's saying. He's talking Christian on Christian inside the church. Neither give offense nor take offense. Be sincere. Be who you are. And you see the problem, right, if you're paying attention. When people are sincere, others get offended. This is why we can't talk about religion and politics together, right, people? 
Because we get offended. Because deep down, we want uniformity. We're too insecure to tolerate even the slightest difference. And we take offense when someone has one. And so what do we do? Keep it superficial. Create a nice public facade. Be polite. Decent conversation. And just get along. And no one ever tells us that paragraph, but every third grader knows to do that, don't they? And so we end up with this culture, even in the church, where we have to put up a certain facade because if we're really real, people might get upset. They might not like me. And so Paul comes in and goes, I pray that your love would be so saturating everything that you would be sincere and unoffended with each other. Still able to take the facade down and still be loved. Let me say that again. Able to take the facade down and still be loved. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Shouldn't be. But see, Paul prays that we would be a church that's so loving that that's not scary. And again, for our culture, this is crazy talk, right? The words, I'm offended, are absolutely sacred to our current cultural moment. I remember when I first got out of grad school, out of seminary, the Lord had me go to corporate America for a little while. So I was in corporate America, HR training, onboarding, and they had us do all this crazy stuff. And I remember we had to watch this film about not being offensive at work. And I was like, no problem. My parents raised me to be polite. I know the social facade. I can do this. And the very last little vignette, one lady walks up to another lady in her cubicle. And you can tell by their banter, they know each other. They're not strangers. And as she's walking away, she goes, oh, hey, you should come to church with me this weekend. And immediately they put, <laughs> they put, they put up a big red X, like, do not do this. Now, granted, you know, you should come to church as telling someone what to do, not inviting them, and no one likes for people to should all over them. So yeah, don't do that. You know, invite them. So I, I can't get that. So it was, but it really offensive. I mean, really, that that it, like we just saw a vignette about someone saying something inappropriately about the way a woman's dressed, and this is on the same page, really. And I was mid twenties. I didn't know, so I raised my hand, and I said, uh, "Yeah, is there ever any kind of emphasis on?" you know, just not being offended, just ignoring it and moving on with your job. And at the time, I thought this person was either being really obtuse or just very unintelligent. But looking back, I realized they just honestly had no concept of what I was asking because this HR trainer looked at me like, what? I said, you know, just like move on. It happens. Get back to work. I don't know. I don't, I don't understand that. So I was like, whatever, never mind. 20 minutes later, getting coffee at a break, and some guy walks up to me, super white teeth. He's like, hey, are you Sean? I was like, yeah. He goes, hey, I'm blah, blah, blah from HR. And I was like, great. Again, I'm just mid-20s. I didn't know. He goes, hey, I hear you're having some problems with our, 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 our training. And I was like, <laughs> I said, no, I'm fine. And he goes, oh, really? You're not confused on the whole offensive thing? You know, and I, I'm not that confrontational. I wish I had the guts to say, no, I think y'all are confused. I'm fine. <laughs> anyway, don't work for a company based in California is the moral of that story. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but see, what Paul does here is Paul prays for both sides of that. He says, look, y'all, in Christ, don't be offensive. And guess what? In Christ... Don't be offended. What an amazing thought that in love we can make the decision in advance. You know what? Just say it. You can't offend me. I've made the decision in advance. 
in Christ because I'm his servant. And so I worry about him, not me. And so insult me. I don't care. I'm a servant. I have no rights. He does. It's all about Jesus. And Paul goes there. Notice he says, for the day of Christ is the reason he gives why you should do this. Christians shouldn't give offense to each other. Christians shouldn't take offense to each other because of the day of Christ. We could literally translate it into the day of Christ, which is weird, right? But there's a context. This whole introduction since verse 3 where Paul said the words, I thank my God, has actually been a prayer. Paul has actually been praying and just kind of giving us, like, you know, here's what I pray for you guys. And so he's summing up his prayer here in verses 9 through 11. And so the day of Jesus here in in verse 11 is actually a summary of what he's already said back in verse 6. You don't have to turn there. We have a slide for you. Here's what he said in verse 6. He said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. Okay, so what's going on here is this. The good work God began with us is the gospel in general. But more specifically now in verse 10, the good work is our union with Jesus dethroning ourselves. We act like we are our own queens and kings, don't we? We operate as if we are worthy of honor. We are worthy of praise. And just think about it. The last time you felt the emotion, ooh, I'm offended, that's offensive. It's probably because somebody else didn't recognize your honor in that situation. But see, servants of Jesus, we're all about honoring him. So go ahead and insult my honor. I choose not to be offended because I love you. And we Christians can say some silly, offensive things to each other, can't we? But isn't it great that we're empowered by Jesus just to let that go like water off a duck's back? Because it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. He's praying for us to have unity over uniformity. We get to be different and still love each other in our differences. And he shows us what that looks like at verse 11. Look at me at verse 11. He says that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. A more rigid translation could be having been filled with the results of justification by Jesus. Okay, first things first, I know there's like a big difference there. The New Testament word for righteousness is also the word used for justification. Context makes us decide which way to go. I personally think that we should go justification. The ESV is a little off here, but I'm not an expert. But more importantly, for many of you, what's justification, right? Okay, so justification is the legal declaration that takes place in the gospel. It is a legal idea in the mind of God that on the cross, our sins are placed on Jesus and he dies for them. So when we place our faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, we are legally declared forgiven based on his death. And then we are legally declared holy based on his life. It's this double swap that takes place. And the New Testament shorthand for everything I just said is justification. You're now declared forgiven and holy because of the life and death of Jesus Christ. So you see here how Paul's prayer is so beautifully full of grace. He basically says, look, I'm not going to pray for your discipline I'm not going to pray for your wherewithal. I'm not going to pray for you, for you to try real hard to be sincere and unoffendable. No. I'm going to pray that what the gospel has already put in you, the results of your justification, would now come out of you as a sincere spirit that neither takes nor gives offense. Wow. 
What a crazy idea. All right, boys and girls, this has been kind of thick. I know. Lots of big words. Let's look together at your verse 10 and 11, see if we can figure this out together. It says this, Since Jesus is watching, I pray that y'all would get along with each other, showing that Jesus really did die for y'all. You see, boys and girls, when things are hard, when your sister drives you crazy like mine did, Paul, when, when that person is mean on the playground, Paul prays that the love of Jesus in our heart would come out in how we treat that difficult person, especially if they're another Christian. You know, your parents pray that for you, boys and girls. You know what? You can pray that for your parents because it's hard for us to be like Jesus too. It really is. And notice what Paul says there. He says, since Jesus is watching or in the day of Christ, that is a day of accountability. It's, a day, it's the day of the great Christian evaluation, but Paul br- points to that day not to scare them, but to move them to joy at what they will be. That when Jesus comes back to take his bride, when Jesus comes back to get his beloved church, it's going to be a day of such joy, a day of such fulfillment that on that day then, no one will care about all the issues we think are so important now. Jesus will make all those things fade. In other words, Paul prays that in this conflict that's happening in the church, that the church would reflect that someday today, right now. That the church would be a foretaste of that coming unity. That the church would have sincerity. That you wouldn't have to fake it with each other. That nobody would take offense when you are who you really are. All because our union with Jesus matters more than our issues, our policies, our causes. Paul prays for the church to be an outpost of heaven on earth. Man, don't you want that? Man, I want that kind of community. And you do realize, although if you're like me and in my immaturity, I tend to read it adversarially, but whenever you see those signs about, you know, we believe here in tolerance, we believe here in unity, we're all about diversity, you realize if the Bible is true, then those are people created in God's image who were made for the community of heaven and that longing is in their heart. They have no idea how to get there, but they know the world shouldn't be this way. They just want it to be better. They're crying out for what Paul says we have in Jesus. The world wants this kind of community. They just don't know how to get it, and we have the answer. See, and when we are this loving community, when we demonstrate this love, we have so much credibility to tell them how we got there. Now, Christians, pray this for your church. See, and we can say this prayer because Jesus Christ, as we see in the Gospels, was the most unaware and understanding person who ever lived, wasn't he? If you've read the Gospels and seen him. That Jesus knew exactly what did and did not matter. And time and time again, people tried to bait him on things that he didn't care about. And he just wouldn't engage. He was completely sincere. And even though he had every right to be offended at the sinners all around him, he didn't take offense. Even when they killed him. He lived and died to the glory of God. In other words, Jesus Christ lived out this passage. And if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, you're in union with him. And so what's true of him is true of you. He has already put all of the aspirations of this passage in you. And now Paul prays that he would work it out of you.
He calls you to trust him and live out this love and community. And if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus, don't you want to be part of a community like that? Man, I do. You can have it. Just confess Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And you'll be brought into union with him and union with his people. And you can live out this kind of community together. And don't wait. Let's do it now. Let's pray together. And gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you challenge us with the familiar. And so, Lord, we ask that as we've come to your word today, as we've opened it up, as we've dug in and try to see what you're telling us, Lord, that what has been true, that you would burn it into our hearts, and what has been false, that you would make us forget immediately. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a love that abounds so that we would be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. We pray, Lord, for those here today who do not know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would be true to his promise to draw all people to him. Even now, Lord, would you cause many to confess and believe that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this room as it is in heaven. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.